Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger. I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, an emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Our next guest, Dr. Jessica Houston, travels nationally and internationally, inspiring thousands of college students, corporate executives, and conference attendees every year. As a keynote speaker and peak performance consultant, her messaging and platform are heavily influenced by her experience in leadership development, mental health, and higher education, which expands more than a decade. She currently serves as a professor at Purdue University and owns and operates a successful personal and professional development training company. Dr. Jessica, it's so wonderful to have you here today. I'm so excited to be here. I want to just jump in right away. I am so curious about your childhood. When you were growing up, did you have this idea that, hey, I'm going to go out and be a motivational speaker. I'm going to be a keynote speaker. I'm going to inspire people. And I'm going to work as a professor. Was that on the agenda as a kid? <laughs> It was not. I always think about how often people ask you what you want to be when you grow up. So I'd said police officer, attorney, judge, teacher, like all of them. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely not motivational speaker. That was <laughs> Not on the list. <laughs> now, did you have any siblings and where did you fall in the birth order? I am the first. So the oldest. And then I have kind of split family with my dad having kids and then my mom. So my mom, I have a sister and a brother. They are younger than me. And then my dad, I have a sister and two brothers who are younger than me. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the bigger, the better, the more, the merrier, right? <laughs> <Yes>. Sometimes. <laughs> And do you think that birth order played any role, like being your mom's first child, that there were expectations or mistakes made with like first time out? So I think the things that I've read about birth order with the first being more nurturing, leading, achieving, I can definitely see that in me. And I was pretty much like their second mom, all of them. <laughs> so yeah, I was definitely expected to do more, to know more. I always think about how kids are now. When I was nine or 10, I was cleaning. I knew how to cook. I knew how to do everything. And so it did cause me to miss out on some of the childhood things because I definitely was expected to be more mature. Yeah. And did your parents talk about money at all with you? Do you remember conversations either positive or negative or were things not spoken about? So this is the weird part. Living with my mom, it was a great home. 
but we didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So the thing that I remembered was struggle that, you know, we got to pay the bills. We've got to get government assistance, food stamps, you name it. But then my biological dad is actually an attorney. And although I did grow up in poverty, whenever I went to visit him, I was able to see, oh, wow, he lives on a golf course. So and then my other siblings, they actually went to private school. They had the designer clothing all of that. So I did get a taste of what life could be like, but we still struggled financially. And even with my biological dad being as affluent as he was, he still didn't really teach me about money. And do you recall, as you saw your younger siblings going into private school, designer labels, seeing life on the golf course, was there any bit of, why didn't I get that? Like, what's going on here? Oh, gosh, definitely. (laughs) And if I can be honest, it caused me to resent my dad for a very long time. It wasn't until I was an adult that I literally had to choose to say, I forgive you. And not to him directly, but just saying it out loud so that I could get over it. Because my thought was always, why did I struggle when I had a dad who was making this kind of money and his wife is a judge. So if you put that together, he owns a law firm and she's a judge. They lived pretty good. Yeah. It feels like there's no justice there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I can't even imagine. So one of the things that you talked about or briefly shared with me was that when you were younger and with this poverty, you made a vow not to be poor. Like, made a vow that you weren't going to be broke, that it was going to be better. And maybe that didn't quite happen. But can you tell me a little bit about this vow and how it served you or didn't serve you? So that vow was a result of me not ever wanting to struggle again, not ever wanting to have a roof in the home where when it rained, we had to put pots to catch the water or, you know, going into foreclosure and literally being homeless having to go to thrift stores to shop. It was just like, I do not want to ever experience this again. And even when I graduated and I began to make money, I still, and I still do sometimes like stock up on things. I never want to run out. And so sometimes I believe I still have that belief. I just can't run out. And so, yeah, I believe that it followed me for a very long time. It was a driver, but it definitely stuck with me. That personal experience is certainly very real. It's very personal, the poverty, the relationship with your parents. Are you aware of any of the systemic that played in? In other words, being a person of color, being a woman, being in a lower social economic group. Yes. How did any of that play in? And did you have any awareness of that? So I believe definitely for my mom, because she was 19 when she had me, she was still a kid herself. So she did as best as she could. And she did try to go and work, but then things happened and she wasn't able to work. And then she had my sister and then she had my brother. And so it was just this cycle of struggle. But that's why I think that I worked so hard because not only did I not want to struggle, I wanted to be able to help my mom not to struggle as well. And You know, a lot of people say, well, just go out and make money or just work hard and then it all comes together. But you and I know (laughs) that 
life gets in the way, we can be dealing with poverty. We can be dealing with depression. We can be dealing with domestic violence. We can be dealing with all these obstacles that maybe nobody else sees, but they're very real and very present. They're just invisible to everybody else. How did any of that play a role? And how did you work through that? Because it can be debilitating. Definitely. And so one of the things that I experienced growing up was my mom would always say to me, what happens in this house stays in this house. And I have a feeling that that was said in a lot of households. (laughs) (laughs) And so I grew up saying, okay, I can't let anyone in. I can't let anyone know I'm struggling. And so there were times when I was in college, I was in a physically abusive relationship and I stayed in that relationship for six years. I struggled with low self-confidence. I didn't like the person that I saw in the mirror and I struggled with depression. And what a lot of people don't realize is when I was in college, I literally could have overdosed on pills because I felt like I wasn't measuring up. I was out, I was partying, I was drinking, I was just having a good time. And I thought if my mom ever finds out, she's going to be just so ashamed of me that it would probably make more sense for me to not even be here. So my depression wasn't just a, oh, I'm feeling sad. I really had a deep depression. And even beyond college, I still struggled with it for a long time. And I didn't pull out of it until I actually had my daughter. And I knew that I had to do some work on myself in order to become a better parent. You know, it's so interesting to me that so many times it takes having another person for us to advocate for ourselves, right? We won't go out and fully advocate for ourselves and set the boundaries and announce our intentions. But when there's somebody else involved, we will rise above. Absolutely. What kept you going before you had your daughter? What was it that even in the back of your mind, I could be doing the drugs and I'm trying to numb out the pain, but there was something that had to have some little voice that just said, Dr. Jessica, just let's keep going. Yes, it was definitely my faith. I'm a person of faith and just really trying to do the self-talk to talk myself out of how I was feeling. And a lot of times it was me pretending. And so I would be happy around everyone else, but I wouldn't get into my funk, I would say, or my low place until I was alone. And so with me having a husband, it meant me crying on my way to work or me crying in the bathroom or just trying to find a spot where I could just like, just let all the feelings out. And so for me, it was just pretending that I'm happy. And I was encouraging everyone and motivating people and counseling people. Yet I had those inward struggles myself that no one knew about. Yeah. And can you talk to that a little bit more? Because I think there are people out there. I know I was one of these people who had all the shame. I had all the outward appearances of being successful and comfortable and inside living a life of terror. Everything terrified me. Everything was going to kill me. Literally going to a self-help workshop, I told my friend, I will die. (laughs) And I believed it at that time. And it was very real. And so can you speak to that piece about potentially the shame as you're outwardly doing the right things, inspiring other people, and yet internally there may be a shame or a place where we want to hide that we don't quite have it dialed in. 
it's really easy to feel alone. It's easy to feel like no one understands. It's easy to feel like I don't think anyone else has ever experienced this when the truth is a lot of people have experienced depression and the statistics show that at least one in 10 people will experience depression over their lifetime. And that means there's someone who is smiling and they are the life of the party when they are in your presence. But when they are alone and it's just them, that's when the depression hits. That's when the struggle, the the self-pity, the frustration begins to really reveal itself. Was there a specific moment that you can remember where you stopped and said, I'm pivoting, like I am done and I may still have some struggles, but I am moving forward. Do you recall something where there was an event or just a mindset you woke up one day and said, enough, I'm going to show up fully? I think it took a while for me to realize just how short life is. Once I realized that, okay, every day that I'm depressed, I just lost a day to depression. And for me, it was, I'll be happy when this happened, when I get married, when I have a child, when I make more money. And so I just kept moving the marker back. And it's like, when are you going to ever be happy? And so I had to really start just reading about authentic happiness and just going to personal development workshops, as you mentioned, buying books and just trying to figure out how can I be a happier person within and not expect someone else to make me happy, but what can I do to generate that happiness from within? Why is authentic happiness important? Authentic happiness is important because we have social media now. Yeah. <laughs> And we see a lot of people who appear happy, but they are not happy at all. It's so easy to smile for the camera, hold the camera up, you're happy, but then you turn the camera off and you can get into bed and pull the covers over your head. So when you're authentically happy, it's not, I'm just putting on, I'm not just smiling for the camera, I'm not just smiling for my family, but I am truly happy. No, and that does not mean that my life is perfect. So let me make that clear. It's really a decision that in spite of what I'm dealing with right now, I choose to be happy. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find in your current life any places where if you're struggling with money that your self-esteem or your self-worth is tied to your bank account? Or have you separated those two and knowing that whether you're up or down financially has nothing to do with who you are? Oh, yes. I've definitely been able to separate the two. And I realized that I'm valuable and it doesn't matter what is in my bank account. The thing is that you can earn money, you can lose it and you can earn it again. But there is only one you. And so I just have to keep reminding myself of that, that there is no price tag that can be placed on my life. Do you talk with your daughter about money and happiness? Do you have intentional conversations with her about this stuff? I do. And she's grown up in such a different environment that she really doesn't get it. As far as the struggle, she's never had to experience that. If she wants something, she's like, oh, mom, you can get it. Like it's, And I'm like, no, I can, but you're not going to get it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so she definitely, she understands money. But I think when you grow up in an environment where things come to you easily, you don't necessarily understand what it's like to really be excited. Like, wow, I got this. I think sometimes when kids get a lot, it's a little excitement, but like, okay, I expect my parents to do this for me. Yeah. Do you recall ever saying to your daughter, when I was a kid? (laughs) All the time. (laughs) All the time. And I tell her, I say, I have, my mom was old school, so she did not play. She did not allow me to say anything back. Like my daughter is very verbal and I'm like, Oh my goodness. I don't know if you would have made it in my household. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma might not have been so kind and loving if she had been mom. (laughs) She's very kind and loving, but yeah, (laughs) she did not play with me or my siblings. (laughs) Yeah. And when you are out in the world these days, how do you talk to people about mindset and talk to people about going for it and not living a life of mediocrity, how do you get people to rise up above? Because I think there are so many people out there, they want to do better, they want to be better, they know better, and yet there's maybe a fear or something that convinces them to hold back. Yes, and it can be various reasons why they are holding back. Sometimes it's, I don't want to leave behind my family and friends. Maybe this is what they do, this is their lifestyle. And maybe they'll think I'm acting funny or maybe they'll think I believe that I'm better than them now that I've moved into a different environment or a different lifestyle. But the thing is, again, you only get one shot at this. And so my belief is that you want to maximize every moment and you don't want to settle. And so if I see that I'm not doing my best. I don't need anyone to call me out. I will call myself out. If I see that I didn't hit a goal, I don't go and say, oh, well, so-and-so could have helped me. It's like, no, what could you do, Jessica, to make this happen? Now, maybe you can ask for support, but at the end of the day, it's your life. It's your business. It's your career. And so we have to take our lives, our businesses, our careers seriously and give our all every single time. And how do we learn to ask for support? Because you shared for you personally, everything that happens in this house stays at home. So you couldn't share things. Even with your husband, you had to cry in the car. You had to find your quiet moments Mm -hmm. that you got your alone time, which I think is incredibly important, people. If you're out there, find that place, even if it's sitting in a parking lot Mm -hmm. for 10 minutes, find that quiet you time. But how do you get people to reach out? Because even you said yourself, it was hard. It's hard asking for support. It was. And I had to learn. I had to learn that there are some things that I can work through on my own, but there are other things that require support. Maybe it requires the support of a helping professional, of a therapist, of an accountant, like someone who can help me. And so I had to realize that I'm doing myself a disservice by trying to work through things that I don't necessarily have expertise in. And when you started doing the work, when you started realizing all this stuff, and I'm asking this for the readers because people can hear this, oh, I need to start doing the work. Was it fun and just easy and joyful when you're self-reflecting and looking at all your warts and all that? 
It's just so much fun. I wish it was fun. (laughs) The end result is fun because really what it takes is discipline. It takes being intentional. It takes being aware of your habits, of your thought patterns, of your belief patterns and what we call neural pathways. And if you've been thinking a certain way for 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's not going to change overnight. So it can also become frustrating When you think you've gotten beyond something and then one day you're like, wait a minute, I just did that again. Like I thought I was over that. So it does take work. And sometimes you can turn around and say, oh, my goodness, how did I (laughs) how did I get back here again? But it's okay, And it requires self-compassion because we're not meant to be perfect. That's really how do you grow? You grow because you make a mistake and you figure it out and you try it again. We don't come out already talking and walking like we've got to go through a whole period of childhood and growth. And it's the same thing with changing your mindset. But just be aware. How do I handle offense when someone offends me? And so that's something that I struggled with a lot. And even now I realize that if I maybe didn't get a good night's rest or whatever, My patience is a little bit shorter (laughs) than it is when I've gotten a good night's rest or I've gotten my meditation or whatever I needed to do to start my day. If I get off track, I have to look at, okay, yes, they said something offensive, but I could have responded better. And that's doing the work, like being honest with yourself about your response. Well, that's awesome. And I love what you said. I've never heard this before. How do I deal with offense? And we're so offended these days. Uh, You turned the car in front of me. That was a personal attack on me. You're trying to take out my humanity because you bumped your cart into my cart. And we're so offended so easily these days. I love that you're stopping to ask that question. How do I deal with offense? I think right there is an opportunity for us to take a breath and ground Mm -hmm. when we're being offended. Because sometimes... In that moment, we're, ah, you were just bent out of shape. But if we could just stop for a moment, say, whoa, how am I going to handle this offense? Why am I offended? Yes. What's the pain that I might have to feel if I actually felt what was truly going on? I feel like I'm being missed. I feel like I'm not valid. And it may be much more than somebody just pulling in front of you. It may be years of self-negative story or whatever. Absolutely. A lot of trauma And what we often do is we suppress what we're feeling. And so it comes out in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any vows from childhood that you're aware of that still creep in that you're still like, oh, my God, could you sort of just move along? I think probably one of the things that I dealt with for the longest period of time is rejection. and feeling rejected by my dad, feeling rejected by sometimes my peers, maybe not having all of the things that I wanted to have or the clothing or the shoes or being the oldest child and looking at my siblings get toys and I probably got nothing or maybe something for 20 or 30 bucks. So I felt rejected. And so even in becoming an adult, I would just handle rejection like it would just send me into a frenzy. Yeah. It would. And even then when when I started my business, it was like, you know, a part of business, like you're going to be rejected. And so I'd be like, I quit, I quit, I quit. 
And so even now it's like, girl, you better just keep it going. Just keep it going. (laughs) When it tries to come back, I just like, no, we're not going there today. We're not going there. (laughs) And do you do that through meditation? Do you do it through breathing? Is there a mechanism where you say, oh, there it is. Like, how do you catch it so that you cannot spin? Yes, I definitely do breathing and I pay attention to what I'm feeling in that moment. And I say, I am feeling rejected right now. I feel that, but I don't have to be it. (laughs) Right. And can you talk a little bit more to that? That feels so important, actually feeling the rejection. In other words, not pushing it away, not pointing it at the other people, but stopping and saying, oh, in this moment, I'm feeling rejection. I'm feeling rejected. I'm feeling lost, whatever it might be. Can you talk to that a little bit more? Yes, because it helps me to be honest with myself. And I think that we're really good at fooling other people and having them to believe we're happy or that we have it all together. But I think it's important for us to be honest with ourselves. And you cannot fix anything that you're not willing to face. And so for years, I didn't want to admit that I struggled with rejection. But when I admitted that, and as you mentioned, I started taking that in and saying, I feel rejected. It loses its power gradually. And it doesn't cause me to just want to stop and throw in the towel. And this is the other thing. Maybe you're not throwing in the towel for a week, but maybe for a couple of hours or for the rest of the day. But then look at your level of productivity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we own it, when we just acknowledge it does take the power out of it, there is such a freedom. It's also accountability because I know for me, since my measure was this will kill me, you know, going through a grocery line and people judging what I'm buying at the grocery store is going to kill me, right? Learning to be able to stop and say, oh, this didn't kill me. Oh, cool. That didn't kill me. That didn't. So that it became, okay, I could try this out. Might be really, really uncomfortable. I might feel really, really terrible about myself and it's not killing me. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about your own personal trauma because it's different for everybody and everybody has different levels of trauma. And some people will go, oh, well, you didn't have trauma. It's not for anybody else to decide what our trauma is. And we each have a process of hopefully getting past it. And you had trauma, which affected all other aspects of your life, being able to move forward, being able to flourish. What were some of the things that you did that helped anchor you and helped pull you forward? For me, it was the decision to stop suppressing it. And I started journaling and writing it out. A lot of it really came out when I was writing my first book as well, because when you've gone through some really tough things, the only thing your mind wants to do is forget that it happened or pretend that it never happened. And so for me, a part of it was bringing it back up and releasing it. And also, Some people don't believe in forgiving, but for me, that released me when I forgave the people who either intentionally or unintentionally caused me to experience trauma. And that was like a burden was lifted because even holding on to the anger was hurting me, if that makes sense. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's so hard sometimes to step back and realize the people that are hurting us intentionally and unintentionally are reacting from their wounds or reacting from their blind spots. And so I say this a lot that parents don't grow up intentionally saying, I can't wait to like mess up these children. Right. (laughs) (laughs) They grow up, you know, the best intentions of like, I'm going to do better. And then miss the mark because life gets in the way or past traumas get in the way. And so to be able to have that compassion and the willingness to forgive them is so freeing, is so freeing. Now, I'm curious, you wrote, you said your first book, so that means you wrote more books or that's my assumption I'm going to make. How did you write your first book and what was the impetus? So my first book was titled Women's Secrets, It's Time to Stop Suffering in Silence. So Mm. really our conversation today, (laughs) a lot of that was inside of my first book. And it was really about stopping the silent suffering. And it's called Women's Secrets, but men actually read it. And they've said, thank you for writing this book. It helped me. Some said that they shared it with their wives and their wives finally came to them and said, I was abused or this happened to me and I never shared this with you. So I definitely believe that book has made an impact and it continues to make an impact on others. That is inspiring because I think when we tell our stories, it gives other people permission to own their stories or to also say, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Because I think, at least for me, when we're in trauma, when we're in pain, when we're in depression, it's very isolating because we think we're the only one. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, if we don't tell anybody, it just amplifies. And the more we can start to share stories and say, me too, me too. Oh, yeah. And that it widens the welcome for those that don't feel they have a voice. Definitely. I have a video with Motiversity conquering depression, and I get messages almost every day saying, thank you so much for sharing your story of depression. This helped me. I was at a low moment. And just hearing you talk about your experience and what you've done to overcome it helped me. And so I believe that it does help when we are vulnerable enough to share our stories. Yeah, that's just an amazing perspective. And I'm so glad that you're out there sharing your story, personalizing these things so that other people can recognize in themselves that they have the potential to rise above it, work through it, forgive, let go, and have that life that they want. Absolutely. Dr. Jessica, we are at our Fast Five. And the Fast Five are brought to you by Cube Money, which is a cash envelope system made easy. It's real-time financial awareness without the hassle of tracking expenses and carrying cash. I don't know if you ever used the envelope system. My family, we didn't have always have a lot of money and envelopes were great because you knew, okay, I got 50 bucks for groceries, if I'm lucky. <laughs> I don't know if you ever had to go, yeah, I didn't really want the rice. <laughs> Put that back. <laughs> Yes. Can you recalculate that? <laughs> so we are at our fast five and I'm just going to throw these out there and we'll see where we go. Can money buy happiness? No. <laughs> Maybe temporary false happiness, but not authentic happiness. Right. <laughs> Have you ever regifted a gift when you were low on money? Yes. And if so, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> 
was something I don't even remember. I don't know what it was because I would get a lot of little gifts that were five, ten dollars, work exchanges, things like that. And oh, I remember I got a Christmas ornament. <laughs> Just like it was already bagged up and everything. So I didn't really have to do much to change. <laughs> Just change the name on the tag. <laughs> uh, if you could go back in time and tell your younger self one thing during a time of hardship, what would you say? You are fantastic. You are fantastic. I love it. <laughs> What's the worst thing you've ever done during times when you were short of money? When I was short of money. Mm. I think probably I had to actually take some things back. So no, I wasn't in the store, but I remember just going on a shopping spree basically. And then working in the school system, we get paid once per month, but they would pay us early in December and then you don't get paid again until the Uh. end of January. So I bought all of these things and then it got like January 10th, 15th. I didn't have any money. So I had to go back in my closet. I had to pull out things that I had purchased and take it back to the store and hope that they would take it back. (laughs) I was able to get some money back. (laughs) That is not fun. (laughs) What does your budget reveal about your values? Mm, My budget, I believe, reveals that I value having money in my bank account. (laughs) I used to value things, but now I get excited like, oh, okay, okay. I did well this week. I didn't splurge. So for me, that's, I mean, it may be a little nerdy, but that's <laughs> my true answer. No, you know, <laughs> I love that you said that. And I'm just going to go off on that a little bit. It When you do start saving and you start seeing a hundred bucks turn into 200 bucks, turn into 500 bucks, turns into a thousand, it gets more motivating. Yes. It gets exciting because, oh, I can do this. Oh my gosh. If we actually just stop, I tell people just start saving five bucks because it will become addictive when you start seeing it grow. So maybe it's a nerdy thing and I'll share in your nerdiness, but I really love (laughs) when I see it going up and sometimes panic when I, oh my goodness, I took too much out. Put it back, put it back. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to be obsessive, but yeah, that's awesome. So we're at our M&M moment, our sweet spot, our money and motivation. Is there a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom that has served you along the way that you could share with our listeners? So the thing that I started doing after digging out of credit card debt multiple times is deciding that I will not put anything on my credit card that I cannot pay off when that bill rolls back around. And that has helped me a lot because when you look around and you owe twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars and don't even know where half of the items are that you purchase, it's sickening. And so for me, it's important that if I make a big purchase, that I understand that I do have to pay that off. It's not free money. Yeah, that's so great. In my financial recovery, I froze my credit cards Mm -hmm. and only used a debit card because I wasn't able to say, oh, I'll pay that off, right? I'd always find a story. But that's such a great idea to do for people out there thinking that credit card money is free. I thought that in the beginning. Oh, it's free. It says this much is available. It's free. (laughs) It is not free, people. It is not free. (laughs) Dr. Jessica, you know, what I've really loved talking about today and what I've really loved hearing is this perspective of being self-accountable, owning what's true, speaking what's real, 
owning the places where there's depression or trauma or these things and not hiding them in shame, not keeping them secrets anymore, but really exposing them so that the light of day can diminish their power. And I really appreciate that piece about self-compassion. Like when we're doing this, looking at ourselves or finding ourselves having taken six steps back, that we look at that with kindness and just say, oh, oh, we step back a little bit. Let's get back on the trail and not take ourselves out. So there's, I hear a lot of compassion and really letting go of the blame. I do think it's so important that people look at forgiveness, self-forgiveness, and the people who have hurt us or we've allowed to hurt us, and to be able to just look at that and say, I forgive you and let that go. It's not on them whether they fully get it. It's on us to be able to release it, as you talked about. And I really hope that people will start looking for authentic happiness because I do think with social media, it's so easy to say, look at what they're doing. Now, we don't know what it costs to take that picture. We don't know the debt that they're in. None of that's in the picture. And so we're just looking at a snapshot in a moment of time of a person that has a whole lifetime of experiences. And that moment may not be authentically representing. And so if we can keep looking for authentic happiness and finding what truly makes us happy, we can have amazing lives. I hope people will go out and get your books. I hope people will come and hear you speak because you speak all over nationally and internationally. Dr. Jessica, where can people find you online, on social media? Where can they find your books? So they can go to my website, expectingvictory.com, and you can get my books through my website or on Amazon. And then for social media, I would recommend my YouTube channel, Dr. Jessica Houston, or Instagram at Dr. Jess Houston. Dr. Jessica, this has just been such a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate you telling your personal story, sharing it, being vulnerable. And I hope that listeners out there will take the steps today to move through their traumas, their obstacles, and really step into the journey and have that life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. Ba-da, ba-da, ba-da.